What is racism, shall we? Let me pray first. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for being Lord over this time. And you know every person's story here, what they um, believe about this topic, what they resist about this topic, what they're eager with respect to learning, or eager about with respect to learning more on this topic. And we pray that you would therefore send your Holy Spirit and weave through our individual hearts, but collectively give us grace, give us open, teachable hearts, uh, give us sharp minds, um, help us to grow ultimately, not just by knowing more, but at the end of this time tonight, that we would bear the fruit of love for one another. And so please make this time profitable. Uh, please help me, God, in all my weaknesses and limitations. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, what is racism? So how do you even answer that question? How do you answer that question, what is racism? Do you go with this guy? He says, uh, I don't know, my gut tells me I should have another beer, right? Uh, it, it, do you go with your gut on this question? After all, the topic is one of those that comes up all the time. I mean, we talk about racism. And especially in the last year or two, it's part of our national conversation. We live with it, we read headlines about it, we avoid conversations about it, we accuse others of being guilty of it, but we also clear ourselves of guilt of it. But do we even know what it is at all? What is racism? Now, especially as the church, we ought to always strive to grapple with every helpful source of knowledge and truth that we can find, but we always ultimately want to be grounded on the Word of God. Now, the challenge, however, is that we do not have anywhere in the Bible that says something as explicitly as, thou shalt not commit racism, right? And this is what I mean by that term, right? There, there's nothing that explicit in Scripture to tell us about this topic. So we have to cobble together different perspectives and angles on it, if that's what we're gonna try to do. And this is what I'd like to do in our time together. I'd like to present to you four different dimensions of racism, which we can wrap up into a, a single ball, a single concept that we can call racism, but four different dimensions. Internal racism, interpersonal racism, institutional racism, internalized racism, because I'm gonna propose racism actually operates on four levels of human interactions, four types of engagements across human relationships. The sin of racism infects us in different ways. And so we're just gonna take this one at a time. At the very end, I'm gonna synthesize this into a single working definition and so hopefully that'll be helpful to us. So what I'd like to give to you, you're gonna see this again and again and again, is a metaphor of the iceberg, right? And so of course, like you know about icebergs, the uh, vast majority of the mass of an iceberg lies below the water. In other words, it's invisible, even if there might be portions of it that are visible. We are gonna work through these four different dimensions according to levels of visibility. And so at the top, the most visible form of racism, the most obvious, the most commonly understood form of racism is interpersonal racism. And then internal, then institutional, then internalized. 
Though what you'll notice, and we'll talk about this some more, the deeper you go right into the middle here, though it's less visible, it's actually more massive. Though less visible, it actually contributes to the greater part of the whole than these other more visible parts. I'll break that down for you a little bit more, but just to start off with that little preview for you. So let's start at the top. Interpersonal racism. What is that? Interpersonal racism. Quick little definition or meaning of it. Interpersonal racism is racism as individual behavior that devalues, subordinates, or excludes on the basis of race. So it's actual behavior, it's actions, it's words, behavior that devalues, lowers the worth of, or subordinates, subjects, or excludes, pushes out on the basis of race. And so where is it located? In other words, where does it show up? It shows up in our actions and in our words. And just so that we know what we're talking about here, alternative terms to interpersonal racism are prejudice or personal forms of discrimination. Usually when people talk about prejudice, this is where it shows up in our actual behavior. So just to flesh this out a little bit more, interpersonal racism, it shows up in our words. So obviously, as we all know well, uh, racial slurs. Uh, we actually find a couple terms in the Bible that we might classify as such. In John 8, Jesus is called a Samaritan. And we know from context, it's meant in the most derogatory way possible. In other words, Samaritans were seen as national traitors, uh, racial half-breeds, and religious sellouts. And so it was not a good thing to be called a Samaritan, uh, but it was, in that day, used as a racial slur. In Ephesians 2, this great passage related to racial reconciliation, the Apostle Paul refers to these terms circumcised and uncircumcised. It appears as if the word uncircumcised, as it relates to Gentiles, was almost used as a derogatory term, like a racial slur. You're uncircumcised. You, you uncircumcised person over there. Gentiles. Scythian, uh, in Colossians 3, this term that was used of a certain kind of people outside of the outskirts of the Roman Empire, this word was almost used like how we would use the word barbarian. You know, the barbarians were actually a real people, right? But now we've used, talked, uh, filled it up with all this negativity in that day. Scythians, too were uh, called that sort of as a slur. So we have examples of that in the Bible. Now, what's the problem with that? In places like James 3, we're told this, with the tongue, we curse human beings. Well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with a racial slur? Mean words, is that it? No. The main problem is that these are human beings who have been made in God's likeness. So you are devaluing, you are afflicting vandalism to the very image of God in other human beings. That is the damaging effect of your racialized speech. Jokes and other forms of devaluing speech. We have in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus says, anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And what's great about that is Jesus says, look, it's not just the four-letter words, the technical bad words or racial slurs that fit the category of sinful speech, it's any kind of even except nothing wrong with the word fool, 
right? Nothing wrong with that. You fool on, it, on the face of it. It's fine. Any kind of speech that devalues even acceptable words that put together seek to devalue a person. That too is sinful, racialized speech. I'd also say this includes untruths. Rid yourself of slander. Well, what is slander? Slander is saying something damaging about another person that is also factually untrue about them. And so racially sinful speech that is slanderous about a person or a group of people. You are saying things about them that are not true. You are saying that they are, these are evil people or they, they are the only ones that do this or they are beneath us or they are of lesser value or they are worthy of subjection. Any speech like that is slanderous speech because it is not only denigrating, it's also a lie. So that too, untruths being a part of sinful racial words. Not only words, but actions. Interpersonal racism also includes actions. So clearly, at the top of the list, violence, right? Uh, as we know here in Psalm 73, uh, talking about the wicked, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. And so this includes physical violence against people of a racial group that is hated, detested, um, whatever. This is obviously sinful racial activity. But not only violence, exclusion as well. Uh, we have in Acts 17 a very clear word. This is from the Apostle Paul preaching to the Athenians. This grand vision of our common heritage as human beings. From one man, God made all the nations, namely out of Adam. We are all God's offspring. We've not only been made in God's image, we're also all coming from the one man Adam and being made commonly by God himself, and so to exclude other people from our common humanity is sinful. To say that here are real people and there, there you are is sinful activity. To, uh, to cut a person out or to push them out of some association simply by virtue of their race would be sinful exclusion. Or we have other uh, versions of this as well in Galatians 2 where the apostle uh, Peter, Cephas, uh, we're told, began to draw back and separate himself from Gentiles because he was afraid. He got rebuked for that exclusion of Gentiles from fellowship in the church. That was called out as a racially inappropriate form of interpersonal racism. Uh, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I'll slip this in quickly here. This also includes not just positive activity that's racist, but also inaction. The lack of love or the lack of unity with neighbor. Uh, inaction or indifference. So, for example, we could apply some principles from the parable of the Good Samaritan. From Luke 10, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. It is also, dear friends, sinful by virtue of sins of omission to see someone violated on racial grounds, excluded on racial grounds, spoken slanderously of on racial grounds, 
and to pass by and walk around on the other side. I mean, that itself is enough to nail us all to the wall, right? This massive category that the Bible talks about of not just sins of commission, what I do positively as as active racism, but even in not addressing racism, in being indifferent to or apathetic to or not engaged in, that too makes us guilty in this regard. Finally and lastly, with actions, you might also put under this preferential treatment for people based on race. And so, in the book of James 2, though James is primarily focusing on people that are showing partiality because of economic differences, I think in principle, this partiality and favoritism can apply racially as well. Don't show favoritism. Have you not discriminated against, your, I mean, among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Uh, are there ways in which we actually exalt certain people, most commonly people of my own racial background or ethnic identity, and actually show them preferential treatment? I will treat you more kindly. I will give you more access. I will give you more power. I will, uh, I will bring you further in, into the inner circle. This would be preferential treatment, a positive action, which also can be described as a form of interpersonal racism. This step takes us into a really interesting direction that's important for us to also spend a second on. A little sidebar here. There is such thing as a positive force of racism. Let me just run through this text here. We normally think of racism only in terms of its negative force, pushing someone down or pushing someone out. But the best thinkers working through this, Christian and otherwise, recognize that racism also has a positive force, selectively lifting others up. So not just pushing some people down, but lifting others up. So it is not only a devaluation of them, but it's also an overvaluation of us. It's not only exclusion, but it's also preferential inclusion of those like myself. It's not only a subordination of people based on race, but it's a supraordination of people based on on race. So just to work this out in chart form a little bit, so you have the negative on this one side, which is normally the way that we think about racism in terms of pushing down or out, so that's devaluation, exclusion, subordination. And on the right side, we have this positive side, pushing up and in, overvaluation, preferential inclusion, supraordination, right? The most crass and obvious form of this right column, of course, is white supremacy as far as the racial history of this country. But we have to understand this dynamic. Racism, yes, it does push down, but it also lifts up. Uh, Racism does push out, but it also includes in. Racism does both, and we have to recognize the dynamics of both. And so therefore, can we take my original definition here of interpersonal racism and modify it just a little bit to capture both of these dynamics, negative and positive. Namely, interpersonal racism is racism as individual behavior that devalues or overvalues, that subordinates or superordinates, that excludes or that preferentially includes people on the basis of race. 
We have to account both of those dynamics. Oops, excuse me. And, of course, in this country, both sides of that dynamic, it's not limited to, but foundationally has involved, on the negative side of racism, the black community, and on the positive side of racism, whites. Right? That is the archetypal racial struggle in this nation. It's not the only form of racism, and it's not the only struggle, but it is the archetypal one. And that simplifies how we understand the positive and the negative dimensions of each of these. So, again, we have here this interpersonal racism. Actions, words, and it's the most visible thing. It's usually what people mean when they say you are racist or I am not racist. That's usually what people are pointing to, interpersonal racism. But what the Bible also helps us to understand is that there's another level, not just interpersonal, but one step down, what you might call internal racism. And the Bible says, look, racist words and racist actions or words and actions in general, they come from somewhere. Behavior has a root, and it's called the human heart. And it's in the heart that we find evil thoughts, preferences, values, desires, visions of humanity, and visions of self. What we have from places like Matthew 12, this is Jesus' own words, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so where, does, uh, where do racist words come from? They come from a racist heart. Where do racist actions and behaviors come from? They come from a racist heart. This is where we get this category of internal racism. It's everything on the inside. What does it really mean? Racism, internal racism is racism as attitudes and beliefs. Attitudes and beliefs that devalue or overvalue, we're always going to go on both positive and negative, right? A person or a group on the basis of race. So you can understand with internal racism, it may or may not show up in action. It might just be the quiet feelings I have within myself. But it always starts there if it does show up in actual activity and action. So, where is it located? It's located in my mind and in my heart, our attitudes, our thoughts, our feelings, and alternative terms for internal racism, prejudice, bigotry, bias. This is usually the stuff in our inner space. So, let's uh, spell this out a little bit. So, internal racism, attitudes, and beliefs. We might break this down into the following categories. Explicit bias or explicit prejudice, things that we are conscious of. So, of course, there's racial anger or racial hatred. Ephesians 2 describes this tension between Jews and Gentiles, which is sort of the paradigm for all human racial struggles, as the dividing wall of hostility. There's a hostility that can be shared in one's heart towards another person. Uh, of course, I want to keep putting this on again and again. As we're talking about racial hatred, the final form of hate is indifference, says Becky Pippert. And so the person that says, look, I don't even care about you. No, no, I don't hate you. You don't even exist to me. One of the greatest forms of violence that we can do towards a person is totally racial. I don't even, I don't even care. That too is a form of hate. I don't care about your suffering. I don't care about your existence. 
Beware of trying to excuse ourselves on the basis of apathy. Of course, racial hatred, anger, it also includes stereotypes, also known as faulty generalizations. And so just to give a few simple examples, it might sound like black kids are aggressive, inherently aggressive, or all Asian kids are smart, or all Latino women are fiery, right? Whatever stereotypes are out there, these are things that we carry in our minds as we are interacting with other people and as we are classifying people in our communities. Uh, This also includes some notion of superiority of a certain racial group or inferiority of another racial group based upon characteristics that we have of them in our minds. And of course, you can use the alternative term supremacy uh, in there as well, as we've already mentioned this phrase in white supremacy. So here's the deal. I'm trying to move through the first portion of all this fairly quickly. At this point, We've talked about racist words, racist behaviors that are cutting people out or kicking them out or subordinating them. Then we're talking about attitudes and beliefs, whether if it's racial hatred or if it's bad stereotypes that we carry about other people. This is where most people's definitions or understandings of racism end. And it's upon that basis that most people see the terminology of racism as not applying to themselves. Uh, Racist, no, I'm not racist. That's them over there, right? Because as far as I know, I am not consciously aware of any attitudes or beliefs in my heart that excludes or subordinates, right? There's no hostility of a person. Sure, I hate people all the time, but not because they're black or white or Latino or whatever it might be, right? And so this is usually where people's grasp of racism stops, but there's more. And it still belongs in this category of internal racism. So let me, I didn't explain this, but I've already said most of this. When most people say, I am not racist or I'm not a racist, usually what they mean is conscious racism. I am not consciously racist, or I am not individually or intentionally racist. So if it's not willful, then I'm not accountable. And that's where it ends. But what if there's more? There's another subgrouping in this category of internal racism that you might call not explicit prejudice or bias, but implicit prejudice or bias. This is subconscious stuff that operates underneath the surface. So on the side of superiority, that might include a certain disposition towards a racial group, usually it's my own, where I just assume that such people are trustworthy or such people are kind. Or even superiority along the lines of what I would call cultural group self-sufficiency. Right? In 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul, this famous passage that we often apply to spiritual gifts. One body with many parts, and hey, you're all gifted, hey, use your gifts, right? But do you know that in the middle of that, there's this statement, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks. Paul, why are you talking about our ethnic differences? Why are you injecting this racial thing right in the middle there? He says, because we are not just individually members of one another as one body of Christ, 
We are also, 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 also as ethnic groupings and as racial sub-communities in the community of faith, also members of one body together. And so when Paul says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, because you are dependent upon each other. He's not just talking about the person that's really gifted with words, needing the person that's really gifted with action and administration. That's true. He is also talking about, in context, Jews needing Greeks and white folks needing black folks and Koreans needing Guatemalan, Guatemalan Americans and cut the line in every possible direction that we actually need each other as cultural subgroupings in the body of Christ as well. And so one form of superiority as implicit bias is the assumption that we can just be a church all on our own or we can be a group of people all on our own as a single racial ethnic grouping and we don't need anybody else. Why? Because we are self-sufficient. We are fully self-resourced spiritually, financially, relationally, and otherwise. On the other side, inferiority in terms of implicit bias, there's the, the, the implicit prejudice, the subconscious prejudice of even diminished expectations. I mean, this can get subtle, but for one example of it is, is when you meet someone with broken English, and I'm using that phrase, and it's not a great phrase, but for the sake of parallelism in this expression here, that broken English it, it's, uh, 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 points to a broken intellect, right? The way in which if a person does not seem like they've been in this country for a long time, you assume that they're not educated or they're not as worthy of your respect. Uh, these things that go through our minds without us even assuming, uh, understanding so. There's the implicit bias looking down on persons of another racial group because of assumed unintelligence, assumed immorality, or assumed criminality. We'll talk about this more in a little bit in just a second, but this especially applies to black and brown communities in American history. The presumption that because you are of a darker complexion, you are therefore inherently more dangerous. We have these, again, presumed associations that are reflected in these slurs that we mentioned earlier, Samaritan, Scythian, uh, both in John 8 as well as in Colossians 3, right? And of course, underlying all this is this command when Peter is grappling with the inclusion of other ethnic groups in the covenant of uh, God and the family of God in Acts 10. He says, God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean, right? In our implicit prejudices or biases, we are calling people impure or unclean, less than, we are devaluing, we are subordinating, we are excluding. To put this in a little bit more uh, uh, sociological terms and different research projects have been done around this topic. So again, we're talking about implicit bias. What you have here on the left side is this classic study in, or series of studies. A lot of people have done this again and again. Maybe some of you have taken such a test. You can get some good ones online even. And it's this, uh, you look at a series of pictures of people that are obviously from different ethnic backgrounds, 
and you ask questions or you are asked questions to uh, associate specific words with these individuals simply on the basis of their eyes, their nose, and their face and all the, these kinds of facial features. And what's shocking and stunning about it is that it very consistently reveals subconscious biases that we have about people of different racial groupings, even if, if you were to interview that person, they would absolutely disavow any kind of conscious racism whatsoever. So for example, this study showed that people tend to associate quote-unquote African-American faces, so let's say this young man over here, people whose features seem to be of African-American descent, people tend to associate African-American faces with negative words like agony and anger. And people associate European-American families, let's say this face over here, not families, faces, with positive words like joy and happy. I mean, again, this is, this is just spot associations that people have, and it just sort of bubbles out. I don't even know why I'm thinking in these terms, but these are my subconscious associations with blackness and with whiteness. Or you may know studies like this. When a black hand was shown holding an iPod, yeah, this was a couple years ago, iPod for sale on eBay, the auction received 17% fewer bids than when a white hand held it. Completely identical specs. Same price, same gadget, same everything. The only difference, I mean, they rigged this, right? This is a, a research study. The only difference was the color of the hand of the person, and yet 17% fewer bids came in for the black hand-held iPod. Or, you might know studies like this, the identical resume was sent out to different potential employers, and what they did was they had all exactly the same letter, exactly the cover letter, exactly the same resume. The only difference was their name. And the researchers picked out stereotypically sounding names that would represent uh, an African-American candidate or a candidate of European-American descent, so a white candidate. And so on the African-American side, for example, I think they used the name Jamal uh, and, and included in the last name as well. And so they're, they're just trying to use stereotypically sounding uh, racial names. That, those resumes were sent out, the identical resume was 50% more likely, so not even 17%, 50% more likely to result in a callback for an interview if the candidate had a white name rather than a black name. So we'll talk about this a little bit more, but that's not even sitting in the interview and having a shot. That's whether you're getting the call 50% more or less likely. And what might the effects of that be working across an entire community or an entire generation or multiple generations if you want to grapple with the power of subconscious or implicit bias? And again, the whole point of this is that if all of you are saying, as we want to say, not me, the point is, yeah, you, all of us, in fact, if you go to Google, and if you uh, type in the term implicit bias, and I think test or diagnostic, there's a great one that Harvard has online, and it doesn't take that long, I think 20 minutes or something, you can actually do this one. 
And if you want to get jacked up and humbled, go take it, right? <laughs> right? I mean, it's really helpful and really eye-opening, even if you're trying your best. I mean, you know what the test is, and yet still, uh, it's a challenge. So, implicit bias. This is what uh, one uh, researcher from GW uh, School of Law said very helpfully. Social science research demonstrates that one does not have to be a racist with a capital R or one who intentionally discriminates on the basis of race to harbor implicit racial biases. That's the whole point of implicit or subconscious racism. And so as I was alluding to, so what happens if people operating out of their implicit racial bias, like an employer, or like a lawmaker, or a parent, or a school teacher, or a police officer, someone with social power, what if people operating out of implicit racial bias get to do their job and do life wielding that power based upon these subconscious prejudices? What then? Or what happens if unarticulated or coded values of racial superiority or inferiority end up being socially accepted norms in society? What happens then? That question leads us to our third dimension of racism, institutional racism, which as you see is not as visible with respect to this metaphor of an iceberg, visible as interpersonal racism, you know, the person kicking out the minority out of their house or someone of another ethnic group out of their circle of friends or, or even the internal racism of conscious prejudice that you might have. Yeah, you know, I admit it. I really don't like that person or those people. Into the realm of subconscious biases, we now start to drop into this deeper, less visible, but more massive and more consequential form of racism, institutional racism. So, quick definition of this subgrouping, racism, institutional racism is racism as a system of policies, customs, and norms that assign value and advantage based on race. Um, and so where is that located? So not in our words and our behavior as an in interpersonal racism, not in our attitudes and our beliefs and our feelings as an in internal racism, but rather now in organizations, in laws, in policies, in social customs. Hence the language of institutional. I'll break that down a little bit more in a second. Alternate terms for institutional racism are discrimination, okay, not just the personal kind, but something more broad in society. Discrimination. This is where the language of injustice starts to come in, right? Because I don't have a good personal relationship with my neighbor does not make that injustice. If it's that relationship writ large across a society, then we can speak in broader terms in the categories of justice and injustice. Same thing with oppression as well. Uh, it's in this dimension of racism that we can speak of racial injustice and racial oppression. And by the way, uh, this picture here, this is an older slide. Uh, I'm not going to make much of this metaphor. I'm not saying that all orchestras are racist. Um, 
And this is sort of, an orchestra is a really interesting metaphor, I think, for the idea of systems. Uh, because there's both individuality, but also a collectivity to how things happen. Anyway, I won't get into it, but just make sure that you know, I'm not dissing on orchestras or classical music for that matter. Um, so, but first, institutional racism. Let me define terms a little bit because sometimes it gets a little bit confusing. We are using the language of institutional racism. That is often used in distinction to another term, structural racism. What's the difference? Institutional racism refers to institutions like schools or courts, government agencies or systems, businesses, uh, churches. These, these are institutions. When they are grouped together across a society and when they are embedded in the very fabric of the society, then we can talk cumulatively of structural racism. You see, so institutional is a unit of a larger thing called structural racism, which in fact, in reality, is actually greater than the sum of its parts. But this is the difference that is often marked out in the use of each of these terms. Systemic racism is another word that's thrown around there, and that simply refers to both of these terms categorically over against individual personal forms of racism. See, so in, it, there's individual racism, so my, my relationship with you and my bad-mouthing you, my slandering you, my hating you personally, but that's different from systemic racism, which is an infection of institutions and structures across society, which can be broken down from systemic racism into two subgroupings, institutional and structural forms of racism. That's just a little side parenthesis just to define terms a little bit. Hope that's helpful. And if I just confused you more, just forget I said anything, all right? So that is where we're going here with institutional racism. Okay, biblical examples. Do you know that there actually are examples in the Bible that touch on this idea of more structural, corporate, uh, systemic, institutional forms of these tensions and struggles? So for example, in Acts 6, Book of Acts, the Hellenistic Jews, among them, the early church, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so this, of course, is the classic moment in history, pivotal moment in history, where a conflict in the church led to the erection of the, what we now know as the diaconate, deacons that served to meet material, physical needs in the church. But what precipitated that was there were two groupings of widows that were different only in their ethnicity, in their culture. Uh, some, they were all Jewish, but some were Hellenistic, Greek-speaking, others were Hebraic, Hebraic uh, Hebrew or Aramaic speaking Jews, and therefore also, along with language, having some different life customs as well. There was racial tension in the matter of the just distribution of food. What we have here, and as it was resolved by the appointment of new leaders that came to be known as deacons, what we had here was an issue of resource distribution processes that excluded based on ethnocultural identity and class. 
So the Bible has concerns for the ways that people as a whole group are going to be treated and cared for in the life of the church. Another example in Acts 15, as you know, initially the Christian faith was only being spread through the Jewish community as they were coming to know that Jesus was the true Jewish Messiah. But this extended beyond the Jewish family to the Gentiles, but it took a long time for the church to understand that that might be so, even though it was embedded in Scripture from the very, very beginning. So controversy, debate, trying to figure it out. Oops. Acts 15 is a portion of Scripture where all the apostles got together to establish public policy to establish equality across races in the life of the church. So just to read, this is Peter giving a speech. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? And that yoke was that you need to obey the Jewish laws and customs. In other words, if you are a person from Greece or a person from Italy, or a person from another part of Asia Minor, you would need to become Jewish in your culture in order to become Christian in Jesus. And that is what they were saying could not be. That was such a systemic problem. This was about the total system of the Christian faith and community, whether or not it had room to include people of different ethnic backgrounds. It was so vast they had to get together all the apostles to sit in a room together and then issue a new letter that was distributed across all the churches in the entire region because they knew something significant was at stake. Or here's another example, Galatians 2. We talked about this earlier. The apostle Peter, even though he knew that Christ had accepted all Gentiles by the same faith in Christ, we just heard him testify to that right here in Acts 15, yet one day he got scared because other people didn't share that same view. So as they were eating together, he steps away and does not want to be seen fellowshipping with Gentiles any longer. And that was so bad, so contrary to the gospel, that the apostle Paul rebukes him publicly. That's what Galatians 2 is recounting to us. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned, right? That he actually was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. He began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. In other words, Paul recognized the impact, the influence of discriminating, prejudicial, institutional leadership. And that's why he's not just being mean, he's going out of his way to publicly rebuke Peter because the way institutions work, the dudes at top, or the dudettes at the top, set the tone. These are institutional considerations in the way that these racial struggles are being handled in the early church. So, going from scripture to our American, uh, I was gonna say tradition, that sounds weird. Uh, basically heritage and history here, institutional racism. What has it looked like in the past? 
Well, a lot of you can fill in these gaps. It's a part of the American narrative. But again, we're talking about systems, meaning laws and customs and institutions and organizations and practices. First laws, they're Jim Crow laws. 1865 to 1965, uh, this was the establishment on the state and local level of segregation from drinking fountains to swimming pools to schools to buses to all of life. Uh, just another example, Plessy versus Ferguson, a uh, pivotal Supreme Court case that established uh, on a federal level, this segregation, and of course, I'll just turn it over to you. What's the key phrase that came out of that decision? Separate but equal, right? So basically reinforcing segregation and separatism um, according to race. Um, the National Housing Act, I'll get to that in a second in the bottom here, but not only laws in the past that established institutional racism, but also norms. And you can go through a lot of different examples. I just wanted to point out one, and that's the norms of beauty. The ways in which from the past, and even really into the present, but where standards of beauty in this country generally have been established according to Eurocentric definitions of beauty. And so it's why, for example, if you look at different products and conversations within the black community uh, during those middle decades of the 20th century, uh, whether if it was the popularity of whitening cream because of a resistance to dark skin, or at least because of an, an adoption of Eurocentric standards of light skin as representing beauty, or if it was in the struggle for black women and men to manage their hair in a way that might make them not stand out as much or might actually conform their hair to European standards. It's why it was so important to have what was known as the Black is Beautiful movement in order to set people free from Eurocentric norms of beauty to allow people to be celebratory of their God-given beauty in their hair, in their complexion, in their however else you want to describe black beauty. Uh, it's why, whether you know this or not, the Afro became a political and social statement as, as instead of uh, working against my natural hair, I'm going to flaunt it. I'm going to uh, live it out and love it and to show the natural uh, beauty of my God-given hair. Uh, ways in which uh, institutional racism also includes social norms, uh, social practices as well. So redlining, this was not a law. Uh, no one was uh, enforcing by law uh, segregated housing, but there was a practice that became known as redlining or housing covenant. So redlining was a practice uh, that was started in the Great Depression era uh, where people, where um, housing, uh, sorry, mortgage lenders would literally take out a map and color code them and code them with letters according to the most risky and dangerous communities and the most safe and welcoming communities. And they would generally give loans very readily, very happily to those safer or wealthier communities and would restrict loan, uh, loan application approvals 
to those homes in those uh, edgier or more challenging or less wealthy communities. And of course, that latter category, generally speaking, were black communities, black neighborhoods, or black subsections of neighborhoods. These were called residential security maps. And here's one example right here. Uh, this was uh, uh, from the Homeowners Loan Corporation, uh, which was created in, uh, under FDR uh, in the Depression era. Um, and this is where, and of course, you understand, on one level, it's every bank's right and responsibility to ensure that their loans are well managed. And so on one level, you understand the impetus for having a concern for the communities in which the, these loans would be applied. Uh, however, of course, uh, the way in which it actually works itself out was racial segregation and a racialized approach to uh, the lending of money for home ownership. In this city, in DC, housing covenants was also a big thing. And that was where neighborhoods literally made local policies in order to restrict African-Americans from certain neighborhoods. They're just starting to unearth the actual documentation of these housing covenants and pouring through the data. So it's an interesting time in the city's history where we are getting more data and detail on these housing covenants. They're putting together maps to find out which blocks right here, even in this neighborhood, uh, were blocking out, excuse the pun there, uh, African-Americans from these neighborhoods. The reason why this is important of course, is a lot of people, even today, when shopping for a home or looking for a place to rent, of course, the dynamics of the economics as well as the racial makeup of a neighborhood are always in play. And a lot of us tend to simply shrug our shoulders and say, well, it just is what it is. And I just happen to live in a neighborhood that's predominantly white or a neighborhood that's predominantly black without understanding that you are living, you are living in and putting words and description to the legacy of racism. That our communities, even to this day, are racially segregated by a number of factors, yes, but pivotally also by racial policies and practices exercised in the past that continue to shape the racial makeup of our communities today. Which is why where you live, friends, is always an act of justice. Either in complicity with injustice or as a personal protest against injustice or as an embodiment of love in opposition to prior injustice and ongoing perpetuated injustice. We can talk about housing, but you can also talk about segregated pews as well in the Jim Crow era uh, in which the church itself reflected the world, right? Uh, where literally in a building like this, uh, one would have been uh, sent to a different part of the church based upon the color of your skin. What's so important about this is that in understanding institutional racism, you have to look at the past and see its organic relationship to the future. I just try to illustrate that in terms of housing. But if you just consider here, a, a quick oversimplified history of black Americans in this country. We're starting from 1619. What's 1619, folks? Take a guess. 
Jamestown. Uh, apparently, as far as we have on record, the first shipment of slaves, about 20 of them, to the new, brand new colony, Jamestown, Virginia. It was a Dutch boat um, of, uh, that circled through Africa and came and brought folks here. Uh, 246 years, roughly, of the institution of slavery until 1865, the ending of slavery. Then we move into a period of segregation, 100 years. 1964, the Civil Rights Act, which puts a legal end to Jim Crow. 1965, which passes the Voting Rights Act. And then, of course, 1968, when Dr. King was shot, which sort of informally brings to an end the civil rights era. So segregation then for another 100 years. 246 years in the American consciousness, you never knew or saw, generally speaking, a black person that was not in subjugation. And then another 100 years where you did not experience blackness apart from all the stigmatization that came along with Jim Crow. And then 65 hits. And then as we know, after the Voting Rights Act was passed, Hakuna Matata, right? <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> it's over now. All right. Just being dramatic here. It's off again. <coughs> there you go. Right? End of segregation. Everything was perfect after that, right? No. The last 50 years, even if we're generous to mark 65 as the end of quote unquote end of segregation. We have only experienced, we, the black community, has only experienced relative, quote-unquote, freedom, equality, quote-unquote, in this country for the last 50 years. And this is simply the question that I want to pose. After over 350 years of the denigration of blackness, of the stigmatization of blackness, of the subjugation of black people. 350 years in the American consciousness. How easily do you think the erasure of that stigmatized blackness can come about? How quickly can we collectively as a people change our minds about black identity? How, how quickly can institutions that have existed for some stretch of decades or even centuries in, during that same span of time built on racism and subjugation, devaluation, subordination, of African Americans, how long do you think it would take for those institutions themselves and their norms and practices 
and policies and laws and otherwise to change their negative orientation towards blackness into one of equity and genuine justice. I mean, we just have to, I mean, you, you just gotta, I mean, and maybe you've seen a timeline like this. Uh, what I simply want to propose here is that the burden of proof absolutely is on those who deny the legacy of abject structural racism against African Americans in this nation's history. The burden of proof is not on those who need to plead the case that racism still exists. The burden of proof ought to be on those who say, you can live this entire history and you can have an American consciousness so fashioned around this kind of racism and poof, it can disappear overnight. It cannot and it has not. Institutional racism describes racialized social systems and norms that were created by exercises of social power in the past and then perpetuated and protected by exercises of social power in the present. Right, so we are still living the legacy of racism in the past insofar as it has not yet been perfectly unrooted out of structures of American society and institutions in our country in which we presently live and that continue to be perpetuated and even protected to this very present day. This is the challenge of institutional racism. And if this is true in the past, then we should expect that it would, we should expect that its legacy would be continuing to this day. And it does. And so we find on the legal front, and you could go on for you know, many moons uh, listing different things, but I'm just grabbing a few things, right? Marijuana use, you may know, use is roughly equal among black and white drug users. But black users are nearly 3.73 times as likely as whites to be arrested for marijuana possession. Um, black drivers make up 15% of total drivers, but more than 40% of stops and 70% of arrests on the New Jersey Turnpike. I know that's random, but that's just the, the study scope there, right? On the New Jersey Turnpike, even though uh, black drivers break traffic laws at the same basic rate as whites. That's from 2013. And you can also raise questions about voter registration laws, which of course are hotly debated, or the issue of mass incarceration, the disproportionate number of African Americans that are in federal prison. Of course, even that is hotly debated, and I'm happy to talk about that. No, the new Jim Crow is the hot thing right now. Uh, there's a lot of discussion uh, that is happening, that continues to need to happen, but it's very worth having concerns about this and considering what is really going on there. So on the law front, norms, of course, there are media portrayals uh, of African Americans that continue. Uh, struggles with definitions of beauty that continue, like it's not over, where we are uh, unrooted from um, Eurocentric normativity as far as standards of beauty are concerned. And then, of course, there's the challenge of black criminality. And we talked about this under the banner of 
implicit bias, subconscious prejudice before, but the basic presumption that most Americans do have, and by most I say myself included, we are, we are trained to think this way, that there is an inherent sort of black criminality, especially uh, embedded in the lives of young black men. Right? When, you, when you see them, you are trained to think trouble, danger. Uh, these are things that we have to grapple with, especially as we grapple with the consequences of these embedded norms in our society. In other words, this is not just an online Harvard test that you can chuckle with your friends about because, hey, you know, uh, I guess I've got more implicit bias than I thought. Again, what happens when you are placed in a position of significant social power? Or what if you're side by side with other people with those same biases where collectively, though individually insignificant, relatively speaking, collectively, especially in a democratic nation, you have enormous social power to vote, to elect, to make decisions, to move, to decide. When it all begins with something as simple as this. Something as simple as, for example, assumed black immorality or criminality. Or other practices. For example, we talked about redlining in the past. Uh, there are continuing cases of uh, mortgage lending practices uh, that are also uh, racially based. They continue to roll out as recently as I think this was uh, 2013. Uh, but a case against Associated Bank, which was, is based in Wisconsin, uh, that from 2008 to 2010, basically they were doing the same thing. Uh, lending only to certain communities that were wealthier and wider and refusing to lend uh, to black and brown communities um, in different parts of uh, Chicago, I believe, and, and parts of Wisconsin and other places in the Midwest. And again, these are not just accusations that are being thrown out, obviously, in the court of law, you need to prove that it's not by virtue of other factors, uh, economic and financial considerations included, but actually that it was based primarily on the factor of race uh, that these decisions were being made. Or uh, uh, field studies like this, again, uh, this is redundant, but just to say job applicants with black sounding names, 50% less likely to get a call back. Um, this continues to this very day. Uh, it really does. And there are studies after studies after studies to show employment uh, racial profiling that happens all the time. Uh, churches, we, do we dare talk about this? Churches is 11 o'clock still the most segregated hour. And don't mistake that point of observation. Uh, it's not simply uh, an accidental feature of American society or Christian American society, to what degree is racism, institutional racism, part of this legacy of segregated churches that endures even to today? I mean, I don't know that many people connect the dots because you say, oh, there's a black church there and here's a white church there, that there was actually a time in history where black folks were not even allowed to worship as fellow members within church communities. Uh, do you think that would have some impact upon how people's worship patterns and worship communities might get shaped over the centuries and decades that follow? Churches still segregated.
because of racism. So additional notes, let me run through these things. We're coming to a close of the lecture portion in a couple minutes here, but let me just comment here uh, to close up some institutional racism reflections here. So institutional racism can operate apart from human agency, consciousness, or intention. Again, I've been saying this again and again. Institutional racism is not because you wanted to be personally racist. It is embedded in practices, norms, laws, cultural values that are larger than any one individual. And so in the presence of institutional discrimination or subjugation or exclusion, for a person always to be prosecuting the case, I'm not a racist, is actually completely irrelevant to the problem. We can talk about that some more. Institutional, ra oh, so institutional racism, therefore, is, as one author puts it, uh, racism without a face. Because, you know, whenever there's a racial incident, everyone's always looking for the scapegoat and inspecting, is that person personally racist? Whether if it's a cop or a store owner or whatever, is that person a bigot? Prove that they are and then they're guilty or prove that they're not. But what if it's not even about them individually? What if there's a larger system that's informing how they're responding in fear? or how they're responding in their relationships. What is that consideration? Okay, institutional racism originates in the operation of established and respected forces in the society and thus receives far less public condemnation than individual racism. What I love about this observation from one author, or two authors, is this, that institutional racism generally works best and powerfully in polite society, in mainstream society, in the ordinary machinery of life and society. So if you're looking for institutional racism, you're not going to find it with a white hood on top of the bank or the government building or the business. Because the way this stuff works, again, to use the housing lender example, it's absolutely justifiable, it's right, it's actually unconscionable if a bank does not investigate where their loans are going towards. And so you say, yes, that's a good thing, that's a noble thing, that's a responsible thing for a bank to do. Yet it's in that instrument of analysis and responsibility that institutional racism can rear its ugly head. And this is why it's so hard to find, and this is why it's so easy to defend. Because it's like, of course, we want a safer community. Who doesn't want a safer neighborhood? Of course, it's masked by shared noble values and therefore is hard to find. Established and respected forces in the society. Institutional racism has become less visible since the days of Jim Crow. Yes, it has, right? We don't have as much overt segregation like we did 60 years ago, but rather than interpersonal racism, institutional racism is the dominant form of racism today. And again, I'm making the case, if you don't get the idea of structural, systemic, institutional racism, you do not get the dynamics of racism in this country today. Because it is not primarily interpersonal, overt bigotry. 
Most Americans are far too decent for that. It's not about that. It's the middle of the iceberg. It's the fat part of the iceberg. And it is, as some have put it, the new racism, or as uh, one professor has written about uh, by a book of this title, this is a racism without racists. And therefore, it's hard to detect, hard to tackle, and hard to grow in. So again, interpersonal racism, internal racism, institutional racism, the fat part of the iceberg, and I'm gonna do in about 30 seconds, the last one, internalized racism, oops. Internalized racism is simply this, ooh, no, crud, this is good. We have to, I mean, this is good, this is good. No, this is important, this is important. What I was gonna say was, every, I'm making this case that this is a big deal, this is, this is you know, so compellingly important for us to grasp and it's the fat part of the iceberg and so yes, let's do it, isn't this so obvious? Who wouldn't, you know who wouldn't? Christians. Uh, 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 an important book, and some of you might ask sometime later on, uh, can you tell us what to read? Here's one book you must read. If you want one book to read after this lecture, it's Divided by Faith uh, by Emerson and Smith. And there's a lot of stuff in this book that's really helpful. It's basically uh, uh, social science researchers that looked into uh, evangelicalism and looked at American Christianity and said, how does the church interact with the problem of race in American society? Um, and it's really depressing <laughs> because it shows just how divergent different racial groups among Christians see the problem of racism. Here's one of their main theses. White evangelical Christians focus on the prejudiced individual as opposed to larger social units. They tend to believe the problem of racism is one of individuals and individuals only. And so again, white Christians, and again, uh, having read the book, I know this, even more than the general American public, white evangelical Christians tend to, as I said in the very beginning of the lecture, stop at that point of understanding racism that only applies to personal and individual behaviors, actions, beliefs, and feelings, and have a total blindness to implicit bias, subconscious prejudice, institutional racism, and structural problems as well. And so you say, well, that, that's of course, despite references all across scripture to the systemic nature of evil, Isaiah 58 talking about breaking every yoke, uh, defeating the oppressor, right? So there's this larger purview of injustice, or Isaiah 10.1, one of my favorite verses, it, it, woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and writers who keep writing oppression. I love it. You can write oppression, right? You, you, can, you can write into your laws or your company policies or the unwritten code in your families the subjugation and exclusion of people because they're the wrong race. And the Bible recognizes that. But even so, the same Bible... White evangelical Christians, generally speaking, reject this, and these researchers say, why? It's because of these three underlying beliefs. And it's really fascinating. It's, it's grounded theologically, but it's also a little bit of sociology. Three things. They call it accountable free will individualism, relationalism, and anti-structuralism. And I won't go into it too much because we've got to 
wrap up here fairly quickly. Uh, but basically, uh, white evangelical Christians generally tend to only think in individualistic terms. It starts with, all of salvation is me trusting in Jesus and I am personally saved. And that becomes the paradigm for all of life. And so when you talk to them about, well, what's the problem with racism and what's the solution for racism, they say a personal relationship with Jesus, which is ironic because they all have one and they deny this. So there's a, a, a rampant individualism that is blinding, but there's also what they call a relationalism, and that is, of course, it's right because it's biblical. Everything in life is relational, but they only understand life and ministry and society in relational terms. And so they can't see structures of society, they don't see the impact of laws and of norms in the way that that shapes the way the world works. And then an anti-structuralism, which is all, these are all interrelated as well, where they don't believe in this idea of social structures as being as impactful as people uh, say they are and write that off as liberal categories or liberal ideology. That's generally the tendency here. So why does this matter or does this matter? And hear this. The greatest wounds in human history, this is another author, John Dawson, in a book, Healing America's Wounds. He's a Christian. The greatest wounds in American history, the greatest injustices have not happened through the acts of some individual perpetrator, but rather through the institutions, systems, philosophies, cultures, religions, and governments of mankind. Because of this, we as individuals are tempted to absolve ourselves of all individual responsibility unless somebody identifies themselves with corporate entities, such as the nation of our citizenship or the subculture of our ancestors, the act of honest confession will never take place. Do you hear what's being said there? Like we all tend to think in individual terms. That's the American way. And yet he's saying the reality is the worst atrocities in American history and in fact in global history Knowing the book, he's actually talking more globally. But the worst atrocities in American history have happened structurally, have happened institutionally, not just individually. Though we like to scapegoat individuals and overcredit individuals as well because we are Western individualists and we do this all the time. But if we're paying attention to it, if the problem is corporate and structural, then the solution also needs to be corporate and structural. And he's saying nothing will happen, no uh, healing and no forward movement will happen unless individuals will stop thinking only individualistically and start identifying with and owning the wrongs of the past corporately, confessing those sins humbly and working together as a whole group. That's why this is so important to understand institutional racism again. Without being overly dramatic, there is no way forward in the conversation about race without grappling with this dimension of racism. Let me go to internalized racism just to close this out here. This fourth dimension, the meaning of internalized racism is racism as the conscious or unconscious acceptance or internalization of negative attitudes, beliefs, and stereotypes about members of their own racial group, including themselves. So what is internalized racism? Since we're talking in the black community, uh, it can work across any community. Internalized racism is essentially racial self-hatred. It's actually believing the lies. It's accepting the norms. It's adopting the false narrative about your subjugation and about your lesser value which either can result in 
despairing self-loathing or in acting out, uh, which one uh, professor thinker, uh, Carl Ellis, has described as ghetto nihilism. It's the despair, it's internalized racism that results in despair that says, screw it, I'm just gonna do it my way then. Uh, which you see in a lot of broken communities uh, in uh, cities and urban places like ours as well. Um, one biblical example, uh, just to make sure it's clear, Ephesians 2, you know this great reconciliation passage in the Bible? Did you know that the primary application pastorally of that passage, Jesus has broken the dividing wall of hostility, brought Jew and Gentile together. The primary application is to Gentiles who are struggling with internalized racism. I mean, you listen to the language, verse 11 here, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, Gentiles, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And at the end, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Ephesians is written to the church of Ephesus, a Gentile church. And Paul is saying, stop making yourselves second class citizens in the family of God. Stop believing the lie that you're not equal to the Jewish believers amongst you. You're in the same covenant. You are part of the same family. You have all the same rights and obligations as every other brother and sister in Christ. James Brown, St. Lionel Black and I'm Proud, just to use this as an example of why in, in, internalized racism is the reason why this movement was so important. It was to draw people out of that internalized belief that the world has it right, that I am less than, uh, and uh, to overturn that narrative and to rewrite it. Okay. Um, all right, five seconds on each of these slides. So, inter interpersonal, internal, institutional, internalized uh, racism. One thing I want to point out here is that uh, even the attitudes and beliefs in internal racism or interpersonal racism, where do those attitudes and beliefs come from? Society. So even, this is why we got the fat part of the iceberg here, even the more visible internal prejudicial attitudes and beliefs or the hostility that you share with people, that is learned stuff, that is formed stuff because we live in a racialized society. So again, this is the most impactful defining part of the entire complex, but because so much of this is submerged beneath visibility. Yeah, okay, I can see it if I'm like punching a person in the face because of their race, or maybe I can detect conscious forms of bigotry in my mind, but the rest of it I can't, whether implicit bias or institutional stuff that's sort of beyond me. What do we then need? We need community. If you can't see it, if the whole point of the metaphor, not that this is you know, truth itself, the whole point of the metaphor is most of it you can't see, then you need other people to help you to see. You need to be in community, and especially in community with those who are historically marginalized. That for example, since again, we're in Black History Month and talking about in this time, the focus being on the black community, if you are not black, you need to be in relationship with black members of your churches, assuming that apart from them, you will not understand this. Unless you're telling them to tell you the truth, to help you see the world the way that they see it and experience it at least a little 
pinch of it, experience it in the way that they experience it. Without that invitation, you cannot answer these questions about racism because you do not have perspective. Your head is above water. You need to dive down and you need help to dive down. All right, to finish up conclusions, racism, I've said it a billion times, it's more than prejudice. It's actually mostly collective power. So you break this down, eternal racism is prejudice, internal racism, that's attitudes, beliefs, stereotypes. Interpersonal racism, that's the attitudes, beliefs, and prejudices that find expression in action. So interpersonal racism is prejudice plus action. Institutional racism is prejudice, therefore, plus power. Uh, social power built into organizations and across society. But it's just important to know what word we are using and how we are applying it so that you're not saying, well, I'm not racist, and I am, or, or you are racist, or this is not racism, or that is. Define your terms. Because there's too much confusion about how we're using it. We're crossing categories and misapplying subcategories when we talk about race. So, am I racist? The answer is yes. Well, of course you are. No, so uh, uh, am I racist? Um, this is helpful. I found this to be helpful. You can divide up the answer into these two terms. There's active racism and there's passive racism. Active racism, it, uh, they are conscious acts of prejudice, willful participation in institutional exclusion. Whether you are actively racist, that is up to you to understand about yourself. I would say up to your community to give you feedback, whether that applies to you. But there's also something called passive racism. That's laughing at a racist joke and not calling the person out who told it. That's letting exclusionary practices in society or in church go unchallenged or benefiting from but refusing to acknowledge that we are beneficiaries of a social system that has provided advantage to some at the cost of others on the basis of race, etc. In other words, it's being complicit in it. It's being passive in it. There is a form of racism that has you on the moving sidewalk where you are moving along with racialized society, complicit in structural and institutional racism. That without a backward active movement in the opposite direction that you are participating in and possibly protecting and maybe even propagating racism by your inaction. And so, as Beverly Tatum, a, a psychologist, thinker, author on this topic says, to sum it up, not all are actively racist. Many or most are passively racist in this country. Far too few are actively anti-racist. Moving against the automatic emotion of the racist moving sidewalk. Okay, so towards the working definition. I'm already over time, but here we go. Working definition, racism is the sinful devaluation or overvaluation, subordination or superordination and exclusion or preferential inclusion of God's image bearers on the basis of race. It is an ecosystem of beliefs, behaviors, and social structures that assigns value or advantage based on race. It is individual and systemic, active and passive, explicit and implicit. There you have it. All right.
we are over time, but I'd like to ask, would it be possible for us to stay a few more minutes together for Q&A and some discussion? Because I think for all my rambling, what is about to take place may yield some of the most fruit um, in our time together. So is that cool for people five or 10 minutes together? Is that good? And you're free to go, of course, if you need to. Uh, so don't feel badly if you have to sneak out.